So now we'll turn it over to Dr. Monica Gandhi, and she is going to lead us through the prep. As I mentioned earlier, we have several panelists who are joining us, including Connie Kellen from University of Washington, Dr. Turner Overton from UAB, Roger Vadimo from University of Texas Southwestern, and uh, I will just hang around to provide uh, uh, meaningless commentary. So, Dr. Gandhi. Hi. Well, thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here with my fellow panelists. And we're going to talk about PrEP in the era of COVID-19, a case-based discussion. I have no relevant financial disclosures. And what we hope to learn is to list factors for the decrease in PrEP uptake during COVID-19, describe how injectable PrEP trials were able to maintain persistence, and describe ways to increase PrEP uptake and adherence during this difficult time. We are going to talk about what is happening with the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on HIV prevention. We're going to do some exciting, um, uh, interesting, new, late-breaking data from the HBTN 084 and how we all can prep, combat prep declines during COVID-19. So I'll start with this case. This is a 26-year-old man, um, MSM, on a daily Tenofovir disoproxyl fumarate uh, emtricitamine. He lives in an SRO in PrEP on PrEP in San Francisco. And after we had our shelter-in-place guidelines, a patient was told that the clinic was closed for non-essential visits. And does he want a telephone visit for his PrEP refill instead? He's just lost his job due to the pandemic. He's very lonely and isolated. He would still like to have the option of PrEP, but not sure what his sexual activity will be like over the next few months. So the question um, we have is, what would you advise your patient to do? Number one, continue to take daily PrEP, you never know. Think about on-demand PrEP. Switch to TAF, FTC-based PrEP. Let's wait for long-acting cabotegravir to be available. Or stop PrEP, no sex happens during a pandemic. So let's go ahead and vote and then hear from our panelists about what they think. Music sounds like it's from the Village Gate with <laughs> Herbie Mann in 1957. <laughs> I kind of feel like getting up and doing a jig. Okay, this is great. Think about doing, uh, think about on-demand prep was the most common answer, but continue to take daily prep with the idea that, of course, there is um, susceptibility um, during a pandemic. Uh, that is great. So let's hear from... Um, our panelists, and see what you think of this question. I would love to hear your thoughts. Connie, for example. This is Connie. Um, Monica, I, I would agree with the audience that on-demand prep might be a good option here. I think that although CDC has not formally endorsed it, I think the data coming out of Europe, um, particularly France, um, suggests that it's as effective for the right person as uh, daily prep. And I think with less frequent exposure, especially for a person who's able to anticipate, um, at least within um, a few hours of when they're going to have sex, that on-demand prep is a, a good option and would support that. So your comment was that you need to have it two hours before. So at least that's the only preparation necessary. Any other thoughts from um, all of you? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, 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 yes. 
Oh yeah, hey, this is Turner. So I just want to make a brief, brief comment. I, I, my always concern for these individuals who may have a chaotic lifestyle and, you know, yes, this person is housed, but in a hotel situation. So I'm a little bit worried about, um, how well he, he's going to be able to, to do on demand prep. So, you know, I would really probe him, um, in my discussion over the phone or by my telehealth visit um, about um, whether he could continue to do daily prep. Cause that may give him more uh, reassurance of, of uh, being protected. Uh, and I just don't, I'm not sure that he's going to be able to, I mean, my concern is that he's, he's not going to be able to do on demand prep because his life is somewhat chaotic. So it's almost like you have to be more organized to do on demand prep than kind of just being safe all the time with a daily prep. So I think that's a very good point. And um, I think we, I think no, no answer is right here, but I think those are the two options. There wasn't any reason to think that TAF FTC would do better during a pandemic. Um, and uh, Cabotegravir is simply not available yet. Yeah, I think Cabotegravir couldn't arrive soon enough. Another thing I would like to say is that the safety assessment will not be able to be done. Uh, neither would be HIV testing. So that's just a caveat to uh, advise the provider on uh, when dealing with this patient. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And it will be available soon, um, but we have to think about safety um, because we very quickly in our clinic actually reopened for medical care, deciding that essential visits did include prep for that safety monitoring and laboratory monitoring. And I don't know what you all are doing, but you can't do labs from afar. Yeah. Yeah. We're also open for clinic visits. And I think um, I, my impression is that we're seeing fewer of the prep participants come back as opposed to our infected patients who really feel they, they must uh, continue. But I, I think it's not, uh, it's not that big a burden for people to come in to get a test every uh, their HIV tests every three months and just to do a quick um, visit for the HIV monitoring. I, I, I think that the creatinine monitoring is much less frequent, so we can continue on with what we're doing um, there. But I guess if someone really had an aversion to coming to clinic, you could do could offer them HIV self-testing where they could pick up a kit in the um in a pharmacy and even though the sensitivity is a little bit less i think it's probably adequate in this situation and i'd rather people continue prep and use the oral hiv self-testing kit than to stop prep just because they don't want to come in for lab tests i think this is a great question and and i think it it this is a great point and it leads to kind of our next point um which is one of our pre-test questions but what has been the impact of COVID-19. And I think um, on HIV testing and HIV prep, and I don't know if it's been even across places, but I'll tell you about some of the data we have that we are concerned that there will be impact on susceptibility, testing, prep uptake and adherence, and even follow through, as you say, Connie, with the visits and treatment. Um, so I, I, I don't think I need to tell this audience that um, the physical and emotional and social well-being of people living with HIV, um, along with everyone during this difficult time, is threatened. Um, this is data from AIDS Behavior about some of these syndemic health problems, of non-communicable diseases, of STIs, of co-infections, um, and a medical mistrust and loneliness and poverty all um, 
being confluent with those living with HIV because it is such a difficult time, especially um, in terms of racism, homophobia, and all of the uh, uh, all of the issues of the time. Um, and because of that, the I think the impact on susceptibility is unknown. Um, I do want to mention that. Um, you know, we have been seeing a very high spike as, as other cities have across the country in overdose deaths, um, unfortunately. And, um, we have actually had more overdose deaths in the city of San Francisco during the, than COVID-19 deaths and, um, three times higher than this time last year. Uh, and so we are, we are heading towards record numbers, um, uh, during this time. And in terms of this question of susceptibility, well, STIs are continuing. So we um, have uh, uh, sort of decreased. This was a study on the bottom left that was at the National STD Prevention Conference. Even though decreases in reported STI cases were seen in your county and um, Seattle, uh, uh, county, the, the, it, it was a question of decreased STI transmission or are we doing less STI screening during this time? And there's a concern that we're not um, keeping up with our screening, including HIV screening. This uh, study up on the right was just at ID Week, and it was a great study, I think, about the decreases, the massive decreases that happened in the University of Chicago healthcare system in South and West Chicago on HIV testing. People were coming into the ERs, they were getting a lot of COVID testing, but there was half the rate of HIV testing. And so they actually started a program that I think was um, profoundly important to draw a tube of blood and to remember to do HIV testing and revealed 13 um, acute HIV infections over 40 days. What has been the impact of HIV testing across the country? Well, this is a data that was in your pretest, but um, uh, not to, you know, to say that we should know this, but this was sort of startling data that was presented in AIDS 2020 from the Fenway Healthcare Clinic in Boston, um, which analyzed healthcare records from January to April at Fenway Health, and HIV tests decreased by 85% during that time. And the relapses in refilling PrEP prescriptions, to speak to the point of the panelists, um, rose by 191%. So this very huge concern that treatment outcomes may be maintained, and even that we have some data that um, treatment outcomes are not being maintained consistently, but PrEP outcomes, um, where is it considered optional in some way? Um, patients starting PrEP fell um, by 72%, and the total uh, number of patients who are coming in for their uptakes or refills or even calling in decreased. Uh, and so we just talked about the concept of, well, should we do think about 211 or um, an event-driven PrEP strategy. Remember that it does require that two hours before for your two doses, so you have to anticipate that the sexual activity will happen two hours hence, and then one hour, uh, one day after, 24 hours later, and then one tablet 48 hours later. Um, and it certainly is an option, uh, like Connie said, not approved, uh, not yet endorsed by the CDC, but endorsed by this um, uh, this organization, IAS USA. Um, and uh, and certainly provides a possibility that if you're having less frequent sex that could be happening in the context of a pandemic, that even with frequent sex, um, where MSM may need four, around four doses a week, as modeled by Iprex Olay, even with frequent sex, 
or uninfrequent sex, that this is an effective strategy uh, and reduces um, HIV incidence um, massively from placebo. So I think it's it's something that we are all considering. So, so Monica, before you go on, there's a question that came in about is yes. on-demand prep available for women? Is it recommended? It, it is not. Um, unfortunately, we'll, um, women have only been studied. Um, uh, only have TDF FTC daily as their only prep option at this moment in time. They have not been studied in you know, cisgender women for on-demand prep, nor they've been studied for TAF FTC as a prep option. So women are we're behind in our study of women on these strategies. Um, Connie may want to make a comment about that uh, in terms of what she saw, though, in um, her demonstration projects for women. Um, Thanks, Monica. I think what we're learning, you know, I, I feel like with PrEP, there was a lot of consternation in the early days, maybe four or five years ago, about whether PrEP, even daily PrEP, worked in women because two trials had such low adherence, like less than 30% had drug detected, that um, there was a lot of concerns and maybe over-focus over on uh, the pharmacokinetic data that suggested that the levels um, in cervical tissues were not as high as in the rectal tissues. And so the kind of mantra that came out of that is that PrEP, um, the association of adherence and efficacy was steeper for women. And so there was a belief that we really needed to encourage women to take it daily. Interestingly, in the context of demonstration projects in Africa, we're finding even with imperfect use, and so what I'd call average dosing of uh, two, three to four pills a week, we're getting much lower HIV incidence than what one would have expected. So in the range of 1%, one study 0%, another with closer to 2%. So I think what we're learning is that um, PrEP adherence does not have to be perfect in women and that even it may be more similar to men than we think. However, no one has done a formal study of event-driven PrEP in women, and so we can't um, really extrapolate from the Ypres-Gay study in, in men. Just, just a follow-up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, have suggested that the sweet spot, at least for men, was around four pills per week to, to be at near maximum efficacy. Do you think that the sweet spot would be lower in women, Akani? In... And I think, like you said, it, yeah, please, Connie, it was modeled from Iprexole that men may need, MSM may need around four doses a week. And then your study, your demonstration project, I think showed yeah. that people, that women were taking around four doses a week at least by their tenofovir diphosphate levels in DBS, and you saw good efficacy. We don't have a, I I guess I would say we don't have the equivalent data as from um, Iprexole in women. And so what we do have are these observations and these open-label studies that show a certain level of adherence and, and then an observed incidence in the context of where we know in these other um recent studies that the incidence was 4% and we're seeing like 1%. And we did a math modeling to try to develop a counterfactual and would have expected about 4% incidence in this context, but we're seeing 1%. (laughs) So I guess without belaboring it too much, I'd say it's probably comparable, but, you know, just 
We always want more data than we have. And we always counsel women in these projects that higher adherence probably is associated with higher protection benefits. Okay, great. So let's go on to um, to the next case. And essentially here, um, I uh, want to tell you about a 52-year-old MSM who is on TAF FDC daily. And he comes to your clinic. He's actually no longer uh, sexually active, but he's taking PrEP because he has heard that it can protect him from COVID-19. So in fact, he states he doesn't even worry about non-pharmaceutical interventions for COVID-19 because he's on a protective agent. So that, uh, let's go to the next audience response question um, to ask what you think about this. So what are non-pharmaceutical interventions for COVID-19? Are they physical distancing, masks, ventilation, hand hygiene? Are they the Trump cocktail, Regeneron monoclonal antibodies, remdesivir, dexamethasone lawsuits, um, or is it remdesivir, dexamethasone, or bam, livimab, sorry. Please vote. So 98% of you said, yes, these are these ways to keep safe that don't involve, you know, pharmaceuticals, um, mass ventilation, hand hygiene, distancing. So the question um, that um, I want to ask you next, and then I'll turn to the panel, is what do you tell your patients who ask if ART prep is protective against SARS-CoV-2, the virus? Do you say yes? Do you say no? Do you say maybe do you say, well, the ACT2 study is still enrolling the TDF arm? Or do you say, well, that will be studied. The TAF study is being planned against activity against COVID-19. Please vote. This music will be used in the next version of Chariots of Fire. Um, So I really like this answer because most people say no, but actually there is a fair amount of maybe and a smattering of shouldn't it it have been studied. Um, So I will turn to our panel, Roger or Turner, if you could tell me your thoughts um, on uh, uh, what you think. Uh, I mean, have you heard patients say this to you, that I feel protected because I'm on my PrEP or my ART? Yes, uh, a patient has access to literature that we don't have access to, so they have... (laughs) Turner is showing his non-pharmaceutical interventions. Go ahead. (laughs) And and it's it's something that I think we have to clarify. There is the emerging data, I I would say it's very early emerging, uh, from Spain, with uh, TDF, FTC, and TAF, and, and, and prevention, but not something that I think is ready for prime time or ready to uh, advance patients. So I will likely join the maybe group. <laughs> it is a possibility, but um, uh, we, it, it stems from maybe uh, uh, TDF uh, or tenofovir uh, having some in vitro efficacy against SARS-CoV, and uh, what 
looks a little more conclusive now is the, the Spanish data, but it's all observational. What do you think, Turner? I, I, I'm going to pose it differently. Should TDF and TAF have been studied? Because, by the way, the answer to four and five are no. There's not Act Two is not like waiting for that TDF arm. Should it, should this have been studied? Yeah, I mean, um, I, instead of an IV medication. But just so people know, there is some in vitro data that suggests there's some antiretroviral ther- agents that that might have some activity against uh, SARS-CoV-2, but. Um, clinically, there's no evidence that bears that out. So, for instance, uh, lopinavir, ritonavir um, was the most promising agent, and there have actually been formal studies done that showed it has no uh, effect clinically. So there is um, some observational data that suggests uh, tenofovir may have some effect from the Spanish cohort, but I don't think it's robust enough to in any way think that uh, we should either be prescribing tenofovir for patients uh, to prevent COVID or people should feel safe because they're on tenofovir. You know, we know what works, uh, mask wearing, uh, social isolation, uh, social distancing, um, physical distancing with social interaction is what I like to tell my patients, um, and hand hygiene. And that's what people uh, need to be doing. Um, you know, I, we can go on about that, but I do not encourage people to think that because they take um, tenofovir, they're in any way protected from, uh, from COVID-19. But I has certainly have heard my patients say it, which is yeah. why I brought up that case. And I don't know, Connie, if you've heard your patients say it, but um, this particular patient of mine just, you know, literally thought he was invincible because he was on his mm. tenofovir. Mm. I haven't, I haven't heard it yet, but okay. uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe I haven't um, opened the question up either. <laughs> But this patient you're referring to just volunteered that, and were they referring to? Yeah, the I mean, he data? he actually was having difficulties with adherence before the COVID nineteen pandemic, huh. um, and so it was hard for me in a way to completely dissuade him. And I used the word maybe, like most of our audience did, um, because I kind of wanted to help him with adherence as well. Um, that the particular patient I had was actually on ART. But I think it's a it's a great. I mean, I thought you all brought up great points, and I'm going uh, to. And, um, and one while you're resharing, uh, one yes. of the audience members, Steve Liner, said that uh, those folks who are saying TDF could protect me is forgetting about the notion that the mask also protects the people around them, and that's a you can't just use TDF as a as a sole mechanism. Yes, I think that's really fair, even though the CDC changed their kind of guidance yesterday to say masks two days ago to say masks protect you and others, which I actually thought was a great change, by the way, because um, I think when we're trying to encourage behavior change, uh, thinking something protects you may have work, may work better in our public health messaging. And I think there's enough evidence from physical sciences and um, that that it is protective for you, but there is no doubt that it protects others um, to be on um, to be wearing a mask. And what doesn't protect others is uh, is prep. Though, on to be fair, it does protect ART does protect others. Um, certainly, in our uh, question of um, of treatment is prevention. So, um, sorry that my, maybe I won't go back and forth like this. I'm just going to get to the right place and then reshare our slides about, um, 
the question that we just asked, which is, um, are there evidence, like Turner said, about um, about um, PrEP or ART influencing COVID-19 outcomes? Well, as Turner said, really, um, uh, at this point, uh, only lopinavir ritonavir has been studied in two clinical trials, one um, uh, one published in the New England Journal and then one the Solidarity Trial by the WHO, and there doesn't seem to be any efficacy of lopinavir ritonavir. Why was it looked at? Because it also in, it blocks, at least in vitro, the serine protease of SARS-CoV-2. Tenofovir, as the panel mentioned, also, uh, as Turner mentioned, looks like um, that blocks um, the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase of SARS-CoV-2 just like remdesivir does. Um, but unfortunately, tenofovir actually hasn't been studied. Um, it wasn't included in the ACT2 trial. Remdesivir was, um, which is IV and more expensive. Um, there is a study in Spain that I keep on looking at NIH clinical trials that randomized um, healthcare workers to TDFFTC versus placebo to see if that influenced their susceptibility to COVID-19, but I think with the non-pharmaceutical interventions, I think they didn't reach the endpoints, but they haven't closed it yet. And then we'll talk about the study just for a minute about what Turner mentioned from Spain. This is um, an Annals of Internal Medicine paper that looked at, um, it is one of the largest studies um, uh, as of today, even though there was a great study that just got, um, came out of New York today, but this is, up till today, this is one of the largest studies of looking at COVID-19 and HIV co-infection. And um, 236 uh, people in Spain were um, had HIV and were diagnosed with COVID-19. And these were the outcomes. There was um, 151 hospitalizations and some ICU outcomes and 20 died. Um, but it didn't look like HIV increased the susceptibility to SARS-CoV-2 or severe outcomes but what about the effect of the underlying lying ART regimen? Uh, I'm sorry that my slide went away. Uh, it got hidden. But what it showed is that those on TDF-FTC um, did look like they uh, had um, a protective effect. Um, but it was strangely um, not seen with TAF-FTC if that was your backbone or a bacrovir. Now, if TAF and TDF both break down into tenofovir, that was um, a strange thing if tenofovir was the one thing that was protective. And really, most of us think that it was probably channeling bias um, or the idea that those who were put on TDF-FTC were genuinely more healthy in terms of renal issues, for example. And then um, if you're more healthy, then you'll have better outcomes with COVID-19. And then um, this, is the lar this is also a very large study um, uh, that looked at uh, COVID-19 and HIV in the Western Cape Town of South Africa. And just to get to the chase with TDF, uh, mortality among those living with HIV was lower in patients on TDF versus a bacavir containing regimens by point, uh, the hazards ratio was 0.41. And also having a low CD4 count was associated with a higher mortality. So there are these hints um, that TDF has some ability um, to influence severe outcomes on TDF. But again, I think uh, I would say, along with the panel, that I wish it had been studied. I wish it had been included in, um, in, in, in the arms of, because probably the cat is out of the barn or the cow is out of the shed. Or, you know, I don't think that we're going to, unfortunately, um, include such studies uh, at this point. So um, let's go on to our next discussion. 
This is a 44-year-old woman on TDF-FTC Daily Prep, um, and she calls you because her husband is on intermittent ART, but he's not steadily. He is living with HIV. He has been depressed, struggling with depression. So now she's working two jobs to make ends meet, and she said it's not possible for her to take this daily pill. And she says, what I keep on hearing, where's this injectable option to protect me from HIV? So um, let uh, let me stop and hear from the panel about what where is this injectable option and where are we in the world in terms of our data? Connie, um, we're at a really exciting threshold. I mean, we have two studies, and I'm sure you'll fill in more of the details, but suggest that injectable cabotegravir every two months was associated with about a 70% reduction compared to pretty high adherence to Truvada among MSM and transgender women. And then this week we heard about a almost 90% reduction in young African women compared to daily Truvada. And these were double-blind, double-dummy studies. And it, I think it, it really is um, dawn of a new day in terms of once these get reviewed by FDA and presuming they will be approved for HIV prevention, that we can offer something that is discreet, that can allow people to do it, come in for a shot every two months and not have to worry about disclosure and other issues of uh, product storage and adherence with something you have to do daily, even though your exposure may be much less than that. So really exciting times. Yeah, Roger, what do you think about, I mean, I'm sure your patients are asking just like my patient asked, do you have any inside information when <laughs> when such things will be available? Because I think one interesting thing, like Connie mentioned, is that this was studied in women, intramuscular cabotegravir, which I really appreciate um, and everyone appreciates because then we can get the data simultaneously for the for cisgender women. Yes, uh, I agree. I, I, I can't be more excited about the FGCN084, uh, as you probably will discuss later. Not only because, as Connie mentioned, we have had some struggles with uh, efficacy of uh, daily oral uh, prep in, in, in women, and the purported reasons are, are many, from uh, lack of adherence to uh, uh, biological reasons, uh, uh, <clears throat> tissue exposure in, in the cervical vaginal uh, area, but the double dummy, double blind, uh, uh, HPTM suggests that probably, uh, we, we are at the dawn of uh, a new era. It, it will be, uh, it's a very efficacious intervention in women in an, in an, uh, and will make, uh, it easier. And this is in a region where the, the most commonly used, uh, contraceptive being at, at the Popovera. This, uh, I can really see the two, uh, coming together very well in, in a population that, that could use it. Depravavera every three months and Capitagavera every two. Although also women, at least in South Africa, net in is another injectable contraception that is every two months and mm-hmm. is very well tolerated. So it may be timing. the same schedule. Turner, are you excited? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing, I mean, we're all excited about the efficacy, obviously, but it was also extremely well tolerated. Um, I mean, there were injection side reactions, but they were, for the most part, mild and moderate, uh, mild to moderate and, and resolved quickly. Um, and 
in the initial data that I saw, nobody stopped uh, the study because of injection site reactions. Now, there were people who stopped for other reasons, but so that's that's really good news. It's tolerated pretty well, um, and it's efficacious. So that's, you know, it's going to take a little bit of time. It's not like they can, you know, click their heels and this is going to be available, but it is nice to have, um, you know, 2021, you know, um, we've got these tremendous new prevention uh, approaches for HIV. You know, hopefully we're going to have COVID vaccines, a uh, new president. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a brave new world. Lots of stuff is going on. I mean, this, I I love that this happened this week, right? Because it just was, there was so much good news this week. Um, uh, you know, there was the weekend and what happened over the weekend. Then there was... Monday, there was uh, HPTN 084, then there was a vaccine, 90% effective <laughs> for the Pfizer vaccine. There's just uh, mass protect you and others. I just felt like it was, yeah, things are opening up in terms of um, uh, what is happening. But I do really need to stress that the HPTN 084, I hope, didn't get eclipsed because, uh, like we all three mentioned, all four mentioned, this is a really exciting week. So HPTN 083, remember, um, was the long-acting injectable cabotidivir versus daily oral TDF FTC in MSM and transgender women. And specifically, this data was released at AIDS 2020 in July. Um, and uh, it looked like compared to daily FTC TDF uh, that giving cabotidivir every eight weeks, and I mean every eight weeks, and we'll talk about that for a minute after this for a minute, um, was actually superior to daily TDF-FTC and MSM um, with a 66% more uh, reduction over uh, the daily pill with the IM cabotegravir. And um, this slide disappeared. I, I'm so sorry that the content went away. I don't think you can see it. But um, I do want to warn um, just in terms of a little bit of issues with our um, overexcitement is that there were 13 infections in the cabotegravir arm and five of those they did everything right. Like people came in on time, they got their doses every eight weeks and they still failed. So I think we are still all pretty eager to see the resistance data um, from HPTN 083 with uh, the INSTI with Cabotegravir because importantly, I think data from Flare Atlas, um, and it has shown us that I don't think Cabotegravir has the same barrier to resistance that Victegravir and Dolotegravir do. So beware of resistance. Um, but this was the breaking news. HBTN 084 um, results uh, came out in a press release just on Monday. And um, remember, the study design was the same as HBTN 083, but it was in cisgender women. Um, the study enrolled 3,223 women uh, who are at risk for HIV in 20 countries across uh, 20 sites across seven countries in sub-Saharan Africa. And as Connie said, it was a um, double-blinded design. So you were taking a pill and getting a shot, um, whether you were in either arm. And the DSMB stopped the study early, and the press release was on Monday because cabotegravir was shown to be uh, uh, every eight weeks superior to daily TDF-FTC. There were 38 women in the trial of those 3,223 who acquired HIV, and 34 of those were in the daily tdf FTC arm and four were in the cabotegravir arm, so um, fewer than that, 13. Um, so the long-acting cabotegravir was 89% more effective than daily FTC um, TDF, of course, meeting the um, criterion for superiority. 
Now, importantly, um, when Dolategravir had its fleeting uh, issue with neural tube defects, which has uh, now been um, wiped out by the by the updates from the SAMA cohort at age 2020, um, Dolate- uh, unfortunately, women were asked to, uh, the trial had to ensure that women were on effective contraception. So there really was very few pregnancies. So we're going to be missing data on pregnancy and capitagravir from this study. Um, and then, uh, so that was, I just think, I think it was a big deal and we need to make it accessible um, and we need to discuss a few more things about it. So um, I would like to ask the question then of the uh, panelists and of the ARS, um, of the audience, what do you think of the need of that uh, oral lead-in prior to uh, long-acting cavitegravir? Are you going to use it? Because what I didn't mention, but I showed you the picture, is that um, there was an oral lead-in of oral cavitegravir prior to starting that every eight weeks. I am cavitegravir. It's about 28 days. And that was true of all the treatment trials as well, doing that oral lead-in of oral cavitegravir and ropivirine prior to starting the injectable. So what do you think of the need of oral lead-in audience? Um, please answer. Number one, I will do it. That is the design of these trials. I will give oral cabotegravir. Two, I'm going to fudge it. I don't think we need 28 days, maybe five days or so. Three, there is some data that there's no need for the oral lead-in. So I'll extrapolate from the treatment trial to long-acting cabotegravir or four, I don't know. I don't know if y'all know this, but this music was used at Guantanamo Bay, played five days in a row to torture the prisoners there. <laughs> Water wording and um okay, so uh so this is great because there's a distribution of uh range of responses. I don't know, thirty one percent, but the majority, 53%, said, I will do it, and that's all you need is a majority. Um, uh, does, that is the design of the trial. So that's fair. Those are the designs of the trial. I'd like to ask the panelists, what do you think? Are you going to literally, like, have people come in, do those 28 days of oral cabotegravir, and then start your injectable every eight weeks when we get this? Or are you going to fudge it? What, what do you think? I'm hoping we don't have to do that, but um, I'd like to see the data before I um, definitively say that. I guess I feel that in general, we have to have a, a pretty high bar for safety in when we're giving someone something for prevention and given the long, the fact that this um, compound when given IM lasts so long, um, I'm not, I wouldn't go out on my limb yet and say I'm not going to do it. I, I want to see more data, the data from 084 and 083. Okay, yeah, as you said, the, at least the um, prevention data did do the oral lead-in. So, Roger or Turner, what do you I think mean, about, do you need to do those 28 days? I, I agree with Connie, and I imagine that that's going to be the level indication, uh, but there is one small study in treatment of cabotegravir fevery uh, where they had foregone the oral leading with no safety indication, uh, but that's all we have to show for at this point in the treatment, and uh, the bar should be a bit higher on the prevention, uh, first to no harm, and I think that will be unless operationally it proves to be uh, com- too cumbersome. Uh, I, I would still be conservative and, and, and use or leading. Um, I'm not conservative in other areas, but only this one. 
Turner, do you, I think that's a great point, and we'll go over that treatment data. Yeah, I mean, the direct-to-inject, I mean, that's what everybody wants, but I, it is a little bit nervous to, to in, put some, put a product in someone um, without some sort of lead-in. 28 days may be too long, and, um, you know, I think as we get more comfortable, maybe we can reduce that, but, but there is going to be the package insert, and that's what the FDA is going to recommend because that's the data that we have. But I think many people... Once they become comfortable, you know, maybe they'll go seven days or some shorter period of time. I would be really uncomfortable just doing uh, injection without an oral lead-in phase unless we have more data. But, I mean, there is that one uh, study. I think that was – was that presented in Glasgow or, or – Yes. Let's go over that data because I actually think it may influence us and we can all decide if – we're comfortable extrapolating from the treatment data. So let's go over that data from Glasgow. I mean, um, I will say that cabotegravir is not one of those hypersensitivity-like drugs um, that can cause major hypersensitivity reactions. And importantly, um, uh, the injectable and the oral actually have different compounds with them. What it takes to make an injectable, you could still have an allergy to. Um, and it isn't the cabotegravir itself. So I think it is reassuring for me to, to think about what was presented um, at, at Glasgow. And I just want to remind our audience of it first. And then I think we're all going to make our decisions um, about what to do. So what was, um, oh, I'm sorry. Um, you hid some of my slides, Mike, which is fair. That's fair. But by hiding them, um, we actually hid the design of the trial. So I'm going to open my other slides. Sorry about that. Um, and actually show you the design of this trial, which I think was interesting. So this was presented at the Glasgow meeting, which was October 4th through 8th in Glasgow, but really online. And, um, and this was the direct to inject question that could we just directly inject, um, and do that and not have to wait. Um, and so this was from the FLARE study. So let me show you that. Um, so, um, so the FLARE study essentially, um, remember that design um, was taking people who were um, um, uh, experienced and, um, I'm sorry, taking patients who were naive and starting them on dolotegravir, bacavir, 3TC, waiting until virologic suppression at week 20, and then randomizing them to cabotegravir, ropivirine versus continuing the dolotegravir, bacavir, 3TC. When the FLARE study showed us that cabotegravir and ropivirine, um, given every uh, four weeks, and then, of course, the Atlas 2M, but that's a different population experienced, was every eight weeks for treatment, then patients, uh, participants, had the option to if you're on dolotegravir, bacavir, 3TC, to go on to cabotegravir, ropivirine. And there was a study where, um, uh, and you can see this on the bottom on the right here, that either you could go to your oral lead-in phase for 28 days um, or uh, and then to the long-acting, or you could go to direct to inject, DTI, um, and go straight over to long-acting cabotegravir, ropivirine, IM, every, eight, every four weeks, um, and no need to, to take the oral cabotegravir. And so what did we find from this study? Well, we found nothing. There were no fatal adverse events. There was no concerns in adverse events. There was no difference in adverse events in going for the oral lead-in 121 participants versus direct to inject. 
this was presented at Glasgow. This to me means something. I felt sort of comfortable with this. And I think, again, we're all going to make our decisions. I do agree that prevention, it's um, safety is uh, paramount, but I'm not convinced that an injectable um, uh, is, is we, we need this 28 day lead in. And if it prevents uh, people from getting injectables, um, I would be concerned about that. So I, I find this data helpful. Um, okay, and then the last thing is I want to ask you as the audience and then ask our panelists, how worried are you about this tale that Connie mentioned? Number one, do you think about the pharmacokinetic tale of cabotegravir all the time? Number two, is the tale is longer for women on cabotegravir than men? Number three, the tale is longer for men on cabotegravir than women. Number four, I am secure about the tale. I know what to do about my tale. And number five, I don't know. Okay, Steve Liner gets surprised here. He said the music is Mac the Knife from Berthold Brecht's Three Penny Opera. Those of you who have <laughs> really? seen that. It could be. It could be Mac the Knife. It could be. I find it very, very uplifting. I don't find like it's torture. <laughs> if, if you play it backwards, it says, turn me on, dead man. <laughs> okay, I don't know. And this is great because we get to discuss it. And, and, that was the main audience response, but there are 20% of you that think about the pharmacokinetic tale all the time. Okay, so um, panelists, uh, tell me what your thoughts are about the pharmacokinetic tale. Hmm. Are you worried about it? Um, do you think it's longer for women than men? Um, what, what, are you, what are we thinking, and, and how do we think we're going to be able to deal with this when we get to injectable capitagravir for prevention? It is longer for women than men. That's yes. that's the data came out of HPTN 077, and it's like I think the median time um, to well, they had a fairly sizable proportion of people who had detectable drug out to like 66 weeks after um, their last injection, and it seemed to be partly related to BMI. Um, so whether or not this really puts people at risk of um, having sub-therapeutic levels when they're exposed to HIV and uh, developing integrase and uh, resistance, that would, obviously, that's the concern. I think that we haven't seen um, the data yet from 083 and 084 to know whether that um, has actually been an issue. I think part of it is COVID and getting samples shipped and tested, but Hopefully those data will be coming out soon. Um, so I'm definitely not thinking about it all the time, but <laughs> I do think it is a concern. Um, and we need to understand that because we don't want to um, have people become infected with a mutation uh, to one of the backbones of most treatment. Um, I think versus- since we have to go into Q&A, I'll just show you the pictures, audience, about what... Um, what Connie was just talking about, which is that that's right, that the tail is something to think about because if you discontinue it, the cabotegravir and repivirine long-acting can actually be detectable in plasma for up to a year. Um, and so this idea about what you do in between, giving people 
TDFFTC in between if they are not going to be able to come in every eight weeks. Um, giving treatment, uh, people on treatment, cabotegravir and ropivirine as a bridge if they're not able to show up for on-time inje- injections, I think is something that we really need to think about as HIV practitioners. And then, yes, in June 2020 was when the HBTN 077 data um, came out in Lancet HIV that does show that time um, on, ca- on, on cabotegravir the tail is longer, um, actually up to 66 weeks, uh, that it can last even after this injectable for prevention. Um, and so I, I think that the good thing is that we need to think creatively about injectable delivery and, um, and be really clear about those every eight weeks. I, I don't want to go beyond eight weeks. And the good thing is I don't have time to show you this, but there was some data from ID Week that at least in the ongoing trials of treatment, that giving injectables, even during COVID-19, people were able to keep up or give those oral bridges in between. Um, so I will stop so that we can get to all the questions. Great. That was a very wonderful overview. And we do have a large number of questions. And we're those that we don't get to in the formal Q&A right now, I think we have about eight minutes or so, uh, we will uh, continue to make attempts to just type in answers uh, uh, during the break right after this. So, um, this, here's a question from, uh, uh, David Mellenbrunt. Uh, we, we have a lot of patients who are already on oral prep. So would a specific lead in be moot at this point? I will say that that lead in was not for efficacy, but was to determine safety before you give, um, an injectable medication that will last in your body for a long time. So I think that's a great point that if you already have efficacy, um, if you decide that you're comfortable enough with the Glasgow Flare DTI data and you're going to go straight to, to IM, you don't need an oral lead-in. Interesting question here from Elizabeth Survey. Um, what about weight gain with injectable cabo in prep, especially in women? Does anybody know the answer to that from the panel? I'm not sure they have it um, from 084, but I don't know that it's been analyzed yet, but that's a, a good question. In men, it was, yeah, um, in the 083, it was, yeah, Roger, it was higher in Capitagra. I mean, was it substantially higher, like a couple pounds or kilograms? The, or? I think the like interesting thing is it was 2.3 kilograms, but it was that TDF FTC also lost weight. And I think we keep on thinking about this. Like, is there something, I'm sure Turner will have a lot to say about this, but is there something about TDF-FTC that there's a weight suppression effect? And so when you looked at HPT and 083, the cabotegravirs gained weight and the, and I'm sorry, it was like one kilogram, it was very little, but the TDF-FTC lost weight Mm. from baseline, from baseline. I think, Mike, we're going to get to talk about that later, but there's a heretical thought out there, which is that some antiretrovirals, including TDF or maybe NNRTIs, would actually prevent you from the weight gain that would have occurred anyway. So comparing with a uh, change between TDF, FTC, and other regimens, uh, would, 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 you have to bear that in mind. Yes, there was a difference in OA3. We also know that weight gain is probably more likely to occur in women, so I can't wait to see the OA4 data if that was collected, I hope. And, but I wouldn't uh, know that we should make a whole lot of it at this point. Okay. Um, this is from uh, Rustin Zomorodi. Uh, he's noticing in uh, their area that um, 
that the actual um, among prep users that sexual activity has picked up almost to pre-COVID um, levels in terms of what they're seeing in STIs and other things. And, um, and I think this is in the New York City area. Are are you seeing that? I mean, we got we got a little nice geographic mix here between Washington State and Texas and Alabama as well as California. What what are you guys seeing with regard to that? STIs. STIs in San Francisco are up. Yeah. They're up. Yeah. Up over the last couple of months. A lot of syphilis. Right. And I think some of that may have been that people weren't coming in for testing during the few months um, in the summer, but definitely we're seeing a lot of gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis, both in HIV. Why no one answered the question in the audience, sex doesn't happen during a pandemic. Yeah. Well, if it does, and Turner's recommendation is that they should wear masks during (laughs) that, but not the kind in uh, eyes wide shut. These are like (laughs) surgical masks. Okay. Um, How... (laughs) How do you deal with patients who do not follow up in two months? This is from uh, Vendena Shurek. Somebody, I have they don't to say, this is, my, this is one of my biggest kind of things that I'm thinking about because uh, I'm a director of a clinic, and I'm very worried about the – I don't want it to go past two months uh, because of that tale. And so we are thinking about two strategies – one is in and out shot clinics so that you don't have to wait. There's no like waiting for the doctor. It's like, you know, the minute you get in, we have a cow there, you know, the, um, the thing that's on wheels with the computer. And if you know that you're on a uh, shot clinic, you go straight over here. And the other thing we're thinking about with our uh, homeless patients is a mobile van um, to go out and do the injectable, both for treatment and for prevention. But I don't know if you're all thinking about other ideas. Pharmacies giving the injectable is also another thought. Yeah. So you you have that's in essence it's uh, every two month observed therapy um, by definition. It's kind of interesting. By definition, it's adherent. The adherence is taken out of it because you're giving it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so that leads to this question by Kevin Armington, where he um, is is asking about uh, the decreasing concentrations after the sixty day period. Are there implications for transmission? I mean, we talk about resistance, but, you know, if, if people in the study have missed a dose or missed a visit, um, is that when you see the breakthrough or is a breakthrough happening? You mentioned it happened even in people who are pretty adherent. I, I don't know that there have been enough breakthroughs in either 083. Like 084 had four infections on cabotegravir. So you really aren't going to be able to do much in terms of analyses about time, time of breakthroughs. There are, there's data from the uh, Atlas and Flare, and it's a little bit different, obviously, because those people are chronically infected. And, you know, so there are some people who, despite having, so when they look at the people who had breakthrough in those, you know, they had lower levels, but they were than the rest of the cohort, but their levels were still above you know, the IC90 for the most part. And so, um, and then there was some resistance that emerged to to cabotegravir and ropivirine. Interestingly in that, I mean, ropivirine seemed to be a bigger driver because a lot of people have pre-existing uh, mutations. But I think we are worried. I mean, if you look at the, and we'll have to sort, this will have to be sorted out right now in 083, you know, at the end, and I think in 084, we're not an 084 side, but 
at the end when you went off cabotegravir, you had to have a 48-week um, uh, tenofovir FTC, uh, you know, tail to cover that or to cover the tail. You had to take it for 48 weeks. So, you know, I, I it sort of depends. Are you a half glass half full or glass half empty? I mean, I think it has lots of opportunities, and there are going to be some challenges. And this is probably the one we're most worried about is are these people who – I mean, I think we've all seen people in the PrEP clinic who come in, and then they fail to persist, and then they come back with acute HIV. Um, and so that's a bad enough situation. But now we're going to have that situation in people who have cabotegravir at low levels still on board. Um, so we, we, we don't know yet. And I think even though they're only – 17 people so far who, who we know got infected, who got exposure to cabotegravir. We need to look at those people very closely, and that's ongoing in the 083 and 084 trials. Yeah, I mean, just to remind you, um, uh, because we didn't get to the Steve's slide, but here are these. We don't have enough in the four people from HB 1084, uh, but these are the 13 incident HPV infections in 083. So, um so uh, uh, it looks like five, eight out of the 13, they were just starting. There was like some lapses of adherence and coming in for your, for your uh, injection. But those five at the bottom, it was perfect on-time injections and still saw that breakthrough. Hmm. And you wonder, you know, those, those breakthroughs during the oral lead-in sort of gets, maybe begins to support that direct inject. Uh, That's a very good you. point. Yeah. That's a very and good then, point. Those are the top five, yeah. So we have uh, a final question here, and we'll try to get to all the others that are uh, in the pool. We'll answer separately by writing. But um, Kiran uh, Fire asks, uh, what about when you're going to use, let's assume, direct-to-inject with cabotegravir, um, does that change our pre-prep assessment in terms of labs or bone density or some of the other things that we do. We, we looking well, for first, something different. First of all, bone density, I, I don't think we should be doing. It's, I mean, even for um, tenofovir-based prep, it's just, it's such a minor change over time, and um, that that isn't really part of the guidelines. And I think um, from what I've seen of the safety data with cabotegravir, I think you could do the same thing that we're doing with PrEP, which is same-day start and draw the safety labs and then um, contact people if there are any issues. But it's, it really looks pretty pretty benign. Yeah, it does appear very safe and um, overall. But the, uh, the, the key thing for all of this, right, is the HIV testing frequently and the SDI. That Those are the main things that are going to be popping up that we're the HIV for sure we're most worried about, but the STIs need to be. Let me ask this question just before we go. A lot of folks, uh, I know, uh, uh, in France, they're using doxycycline as a, a preventative. Connie, I'm just going to throw it right to you. Um, what about doxycycline prophylaxis for STIs? Well, it's a, there's one study that Mike is referring to that was a, in about 200 some odd uh, MSM who were in the open label phase of the event-driven PrEP study. And they found uh, that a single dose of doxycycline, 200 milligrams within um, 24 to 72 hours after condomless sex, reduced uh, overall bacterial STIs by about 
48%. The, all the effect was in syphilis and chlamydia, where there was about a 70% reduction, no effect on gonorrhea, but they have higher tetracycline resistance in GC. I'm not ready to prescribe it yet. We're doing a study in San Francisco and Seattle to try to do a deeper, to look both in HIV infected uh, MSM and transgender women and those who are uninfected and on PrEP. And so we'll have more data. There's also a couple of other studies that are being uh, done in Australia and um, hopefully another study in France. So I, I think it's very provocative data, but I think we don't know yet uh, enough about the impact on resistance, not just resistance um, so much in STIs, but in other bacteria, Staph aureus and other um, common uh, bacteria in our body. So stay tuned. Yeah. All right. So we are out of time. Thank you, uh, Monica, for a great panel leadership and to the panel for wonderful discussion, and especially to the audience for sending in so many great questions. And we'll try to get to the rest of them, as I mentioned. So we're a little bit behind in schedule. Why don't we're supposed to reconvene at the top of the hour? Uh, I will just arbitrarily give us an extra two minutes. So let's meet at the top of the hour plus two minutes and, uh, and we'll, we'll go from there. So we'll take a quick break. Thanks. Thank you.